Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a digital offering. This is by no means accidental. My name is Brad Listy. Thank you for being here. Thanks for uh, tuning in wherever you happen to be on planet Earth. I am in Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. Uh, it is extremely entertaining here. Everywhere you go, there is entertainment unfolding in every direction. It is incredible. Uh, hey, I have a favor to ask of you. Pretty please. Here's the thing. I need to get uh, 500 reviews on iTunes. It's a fairly ambitious goal. I think I currently have 122 reviews. And the thing is, if I get to 500, it will greatly help the show's uh, iTunes ranking and placement and so on. It will help the show find more listeners, etc. So I know uh, for a fact that there are thousands of you out there who tune in on a regular basis. If you are a regular listener and you enjoy the show, I am asking you kindly, gently, uh, politely to please go to your iTunes, go to the iTunes store, do a search for other people with Brad Listy, rate the show, uh, write a review. It takes about two minutes and I would appreciate it so much. 
Uh, otherwise, my only other plug has to do with my new book, Bored. It is out there. It is co-authored with Justin Benton, B-O-A-R-D. That's the title. Please buy it. Uh, give it as a gift for the holidays. The book just got a nice review over at htmlgiant.com, and it is available now wherever books are sold online in both print and ebook editions. So uh, let's do some tweets before we get started. How about that? Uh, here are some shockingly revealing tweets from my personal Twitter feed at Brad Listy. Are you ready? Are you emotionally prepared? Here we go. Two-year-old daughter just asked me if I have a vagina. As I went to say no, my wife interrupted and said, kind of. At doctor's office, waiting in examination room, alone. Seems like it would be funny to preemptively strip naked and just sit here, deadpan. Daughter just told me that she likes my boobs. A documentary about a really compulsive person who can't stop dancing. Wonder if a farmer has ever milked a cow directly into a bowl of cereal. The concept of the little drummer boy seems insane, i.e. having a young boy play a snare drum while standing five feet away from a newborn. Feel like I might laugh uncontrollably if forced to milk a cow. Okay, there you have it, folks. Those are uh, some tweets. Those are some high-quality tweets. I hope you enjoyed them. I hope you enjoyed them. I also hope you enjoy them. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Zaina El-Khalil. She is, in addition to being an author, an installation artist, a curator, and a cultural activist. During the July 2006 attacks on Lebanon, her blog, BeirutUpdate.blogspot.com, 
was published internationally by venues like CNN and the BBC in 2008. She was invited to speak at the Nobel Peace Center in Oslo, and earlier this year she was named a TED Fellow. Her book, Beirut, I Love You, is available now in the United States in ebook format from NYRB Lit, a new publication series from the New York Review of Books devoted to publishing contemporary works of literary merit from around the world. Uh, the book is also in the process of becoming a feature film. I'm very pleased to have Zaina here on the program. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Zaina El Khalil. I'm in Beirut, Lebanon, um, in my apartment that's just across the street from my studio, which is absolutely lovely because I get to walk to work every day. Um, it's an old Lebanese building, uh, so <laughs> everywhere you walk, the floor squeaks. Um, there are little bullet holes <laughs> on the side of the facade, uh, reminiscent of the Civil War. Um, but it's a lovely space it adds to the because charm, it's in right? downtown Beirut. Oh, definitely adds to the charm, <laughs> part of our history that, uh, you know, can't be avoided. But it's lovely because it's in the center of um, Hamra, which is located in West Beirut, which is where everything, everything happens. It's the art and cosmopolitan center of uh, of Lebanon if not the world <laughs> <laughs> and so you're and you're right there in the middle of it is that where you've always lived I'm right in the middle yes yes um, I moved to Lebanon in 1994 and since then I've been in this part of town um, between these two blocks between the building I, I live in now and uh, what was my what is my studio that was once my my home, now a professional studio space. Wow. Okay, so I want to get to Lebanon, but I feel like there's so much about your history that, uh, you know, takes place in other areas of the world, and you, you've got a very interesting biography. So I want to talk to you about that first. Um, you were raised. Okay. You were raised in Nigeria. Is that correct? Like, talk. Take it. Yes. Start at the beginning. Like, tell us. Tell us where you were born <laughs> and where you were raised, and then we'll build from there. Well, I actually have to start a few steps before. Um, it starts with my grandfather, who emigrated um, at the turn of last century, because um, things in Lebanon were very uh, tough back then. And wow, they're still tough now. <laughs> Not much has changed. Um, but he, he was actually trying to get to America. And... Um, on the way going there, he contracted an eye infection and they told him that he should take another boat because they didn't want sick people on the, the boat to America. So he took another boat, which landed him in Mexico, and the captain um, assured him that he would be able to walk from Mexico to America, so no problem. So he <laughs> took that boat and he ended up in Mexico for 16 years, and it was the time of all the, the revolutions. So um, unfortunately, he did not uh, succeed in, um, you know, in, 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 in building a life for himself. So he came back to Lebanon, devastated, ashamed. Um, and then someone told him, well, why don't you try Africa? So he got on another boat, and this time he ended up in Nigeria. And that's kind of 
how my the story of my family uh, starts. Um, in 1976, uh, the year I was born, um, the civil war in Lebanon was already uh, raging on. And uh, so my, my parents were already in Nigeria at the time. And um, my mother could not fly back to Lebanon to give birth because of the, the, the war and the situation. So she ended up going to London and uh, she gave birth to me there. And, um, and then a month later, flew back to Nigeria. And so I spent the first 15 years of my life um, in Lagos. Okay, so where, where, what does your passport say? Where do you do you have multiple citizenships? <laughs> I, I have, uh, yeah, because at the time, in 76, they were still giving out passports. Uh, so I do have, I am a subject of the Queen, and uh, it's, it's actually been a blessing because, uh, because of my passport, I've been able to travel whenever I want and see the world, um, you know, without having to worry and apply for visas. And uh, so it's, it's really been a blessing. Um, I don't think I would be the person I am today, you know, had I not been able to travel so much. And that was all uh, thanks to the passport. So in a way, you know, going going to London was really a blessing in disguise. Well, yeah, and you know, like when when you have like a, a British passport or a British citizenship, you you also have like the access to the Commonwealth countries, right? You can like go yeah. live and work in Canada more easily than than even we could here in the states, probably. Uh, definitely, definitely, and I'm sure a couple islands in the Pacific too. Yeah, like, yeah. See, that's the, I'm so jealous, and it, like just reading up on you before <laughs> before we started talking, I I always get like this like wave of insecurity when someone you're so worldly. I feel like an idiot. I'm like frantically I'm frantically researching Lebanon on Wikipedia to like bring myself up to speed, um, you know, because uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I guess I always feel like I'm underread, and I always feel like I'm under traveled which maybe is healthy, but I, I never feel like, but I, I feel like that too. I feel like that too. Yeah. But maybe, like, yeah, I feel it's like never enough. It's never enough, but I feel like maybe you're ahead. No, I feel, I feel like you've had access. <laughs> you've had some big, you've had some big experiences. In it. Uh, well, you, you're more than welcome to come visit anytime. Well, you know, I was, here just, in I was just in uh, Israel, uh, in, yeah. in September researching a book that yeah. I was writing. And I was close. That's a, that's the that's the first time I've ever been in the Middle East. So, I was there for like well, uh, three days. You know that if if you visit um, if you visit Israel, you can't come to Arab uh, to most Arab countries. You have to change your passport. If you have a stamp uh, in your passport, uh, an Israeli stamp, um, you will not be allowed into a lot of Arab countries, including Lebanon. So you, if you do have that stamp, you have to change your passport if you want to come visit. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize because that. technically, yeah, technically we're we're in a state of uh, state of war. Um, uh, technically, so uh, it's uh, it's it's illegal Ugh. to do that. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, like I, never, I had never been to that part of the world, and I got like hassled at the airport. Uh, just because security on El Al, I flew on El Al, the Israeli airline. It was so mm -hmm. intense, you know, and I just have no experience in that part of the world. So uh, I got there 
and they start interviewing you in line at the airport in like a really kind of professional way. You know, there's like a lot of specific detail questions and these people are practiced at this. They're trying to kind of suss out what your situation is. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, they started asking me questions and I started answering and I think I was a little nervous. And so they picked up on that and they're like, you know, they made me go to another like special room. And, you know, I was just sort of a, I felt like I was sort of, uh, I don't know. What's the word? An idiot <laughs> because I was just being this, interrogated. Well, no, I just felt like I handled it poorly because I was too, mm. I was too awkward. Do you know what I'm saying? I was, mm. I was talking too much. Well, and anyone who's put in that kind of situation, you know, no matter where you are in the world, um, it feels really uncomfortable to feel like you're being judged. Yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, from what I know of um, friends who have been to that part of the world, um, it's the same thing. And it's also a scare tactic to keep, you know, liberal, open-minded people away because, um, you know, it's for, the way I see it um, is that it's, it's whole... It's, part of the whole fear machine, you know, that, that exists there, that, um, um, it's this kind of bubble that, uh, they, they don't want, you know, they don't want, um, certain kinds of people coming, uh, coming to visit, to report, to try and change things or shake things up. So, you know, it's, it's definitely uncomfortable. Well, uh, mm-hmm. let's keep building on the, the okay. <laughs> back to Lebanon. Yeah, so we're back to Nigeria. Actually, you said you were you were raised. Okay. In, were you raised in Lagos? Is that what you said? Yep. Okay. Yep. So tell me about that. So like, this was your entire childhood up until your college years. You were in Nigeria. So where we lived it was in one of the older parts of uh, Lagos, which is called Apapa, and. Um, Apapa in the beginning was, you know, pretty hip. A lot of um, uh, the Lebanese who immigrated kind of settled there. But then later, everything moved to another island. Um, the, the, like Lagos is very lagoony, so there are lots of little islands connected by bridges. You don't feel like it's an island island. It's not like an exotic island, uh, but they are actually little floating masses of land connected by bridges. So we kind of ended up getting uh, left out. <laughs> um, uh, and people moved further inland and, uh, you know, all the financial district and all of that and a lot of uh, the economic growth went inland. But in a way it was really nice because um, it felt like, you know, we were really, you could still feel Africa was still uh, very raw um, and, you know, unfiltered. There was, uh, uh, I, I used to feel, I still feel very connected to nature when I'm there, to the land. Um, uh, and that's, I think, for a child growing up, it's, it's, it's a gift, you know, to be able to run around and, and play until, you know, 9, 10 o'clock in the evening. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a blessing in, in uh, the kind of uh, world we have today. Um, I, uh, I was always aware of being different, um, meaning that I came from somewhere else because uh, we used to call our family in Lebanon every weekend. And, uh, you know, my parents felt it was really important to stay in touch with them. And especially with the civil war raging, it was important for them to hear our voices and, you know, to stay connected to us growing up. 
Um, and then at one point I was, um, I became very angry because I didn't really know who I was or where I, you know, how, where I fit in. And, uh, and, uh, you know, hormones started kicking in and that's when I discovered, um, heavy metal (laughs) (laughs) and that, that became my salvation because I just locked myself up in my room with these, you know, cassette tapes that I don't know where I would find them. Sometimes if people were traveling, I'd ask them to, I'd make a list and uh, they'd bring them back. And I just headbanged for like hours until I felt better. (laughs) (laughs) So what were your bands? Like what were your, what were your heavy metal bands? Did you have favorites, obviously? Oh, definitely. So in the beginning, I have to confess, it's like I started slow. So I started with more like glam rock and definitely like Bon Jovi was on the top, 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 top for many years. Sure. Um, and then I slowly progressed to more um, like anger and uh, and then thrash, you know, and uh, Megadeth was also like a big favorite. Um, but then you know, I wanted like something with substance, and uh, and then I discovered Iron Maiden, and um, you know, the singer, the lead singer of Iron Maiden, actually has a degree in English literature, so he he would create these songs, these their ballads, and uh, I'd learn a lot about like um, Greek philosophy and uh, not philosophy, but like mystical stories and uh, through through his music and. Um, I really like the uh, the album art too. So I started I started copying the album covers, and that's how I taught myself how to draw by copying uh, the Iron Maiden covers. <laughs> Interesting. This yeah. is, see, this is, a, this is yes. an origin story that I have not heard yet. This is new. <laughs> yes. So when we, let's talk about your anger as a teenage uh, as a teenage girl, because you know obviously anger in teenagers is is normal. Uh, we all, go, yeah. we all go through that, but like from a personality standpoint, um, you know, it sounds like you were already leaning in an artistic direction just by, you know, drawing these album covers and locking your, like locking yourself in your room and listening to heavy metal for a long time. I don't, I don't, I think that's an artistic indicator. I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of teenagers <laughs> listen to music in their rooms, but when you're listening to metal for hours on end, like that's pretty much a sign that you're going to wind up doing installations or writing books at some point. Really? I think so. I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah. were you, like, at this time, were you, like, how were you behaving? Do you know what I'm saying? In the world. And were you getting along with your family? Yeah. 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 You know, I was, I, it, I, I knew why I was angry because um, I, I noticed at a very young age, you know, the difference between, people who have and people who don't have. Um, and I was always um, uncomfortable with having the security of a home and a car, you know, and the bus that would take me to school and back. And then, you know, driving along the streets to school, um, you know, I, I would see, uh, you know, kids on the streets, um, you know, during traffic, they'd be trying to sell merchandise. And I felt very ashamed. I felt very ashamed that, that um, you know, I had security, like financial security and a certain kind of lifestyle that they didn't have. And so this, and I didn't know what to do with it because it was so overwhelming. What, what could I do? Um, and, um, 
and I felt this great injustice um, that I didn't like the system of the world that, that was around me. And then whenever we would travel, I saw that, you know, it was even more, more extreme, you know, the difference between those who have and have not. And um, so I guess, you know, it was just this frustration of not being able to do anything. But then, um, then I kind of discovered uh, student government and then I started running for school elections and school president and all that. And then I found that, you know, by at least doing that, I could make a difference in my immediate community. And maybe this was like a stepping stone. Um, and then I, I started to feel better that, well, there are ways maybe, you know, that, that we can, we can make a difference. But then, um, it was always this, um, this clash because, uh, part of me wanted to be responsible and, uh, do good, you know, and uh, change the world. And a part of me just wanted to draw and paint and be selfish and live in my own world and, you know, take care of my, my imagination and my heart. And so these things were always clashing. Um, but then I resolved it at one point by, um, and this is how I kept getting reelected is because I made fabulous posters. So I would copy like the album art from the, the metal albums and then, you know, right, just write like vote for Zena <laughs> under <laughs> and, and that, that seemed to, to work. And so I merged, I merged art and politics uh, then. And I think that was kind of the cornerstone, you know, the, the, the beginning of, uh, of what it is that I'm, I'm trying to do today with my artwork. Okay. So a couple of things in response to all that, first of all, uh, what I was alluding to earlier about you being more worldly than me and possibly much smarter, just the fact that you knew that you were, you know, why you were angry as a teenager and that it had something to do with, uh, you know, uh, socioeconomic inequality and whatnot. Like when I was a teenager and I was angry, I think I was just angry because I couldn't get any girls to go out with me or whatever. You know? <laughs> well, that's true. That's true for yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing that you said that really, um, you know, made me stop for a moment in my brain and think is, is the, the notion of somebody being able, you know, the notion of wanting to change the world, which is again, a, a very common impulse, I think, especially among the young. And, you know, when you're at the height of your idealism and you have all this energy and you're kind of coming into yourself. But, um, the other thing that you said about learning through student government that you could affect your immediate community uh, that is something like that notion alone is something that I've been thinking about lately because you, you know, it's easy to look around and see all these things at a macro level and to feel overwhelmed by how big the problems of the world are. But I sort of sometimes wonder what would happen if people just tried to focus on their block or their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And if everybody just mm -hmm. focused that way, what would happen to the big picture? Do you see what I'm saying? And like, yeah. it, makes oh, it, definitely. More, it makes it more manageable. So I, I guess like a question for you is how do you, uh, now that you're a bit older, conceive of the notion of an artist being able to change the world? Like, do you, is, have you, have you come to view that impulse with more cynicism or are you still as idealistic as you were when you were younger? Um, no, I'm still very idealistic, but I'm also aware that, um, uh, that things, uh, need to be done in a way that's natural, um, in a way that also has, 
a little bit of uh, moderation for it to be effective, you know? Um, and I, I believe that like art um, that starts from a uh, grassroots perspective is always healthy, you know, because like we were saying before, you directly, you know, you affect your direct community and, and that's something that's totally manageable. But then when art kind of leaves your hands, your studio, your neighbor, and gets put into the public um, sphere, sometimes um, it can be manipulated or especially that the art world is so, you know, it's very, um, what's the word? How do I say this without like <laughs> scaring off galleries from ever wanting yeah. to work with me? But it's it's very con- consumer oriented. It's very much about money, you know, the the art world, the art sales, the galleries, um, and so sometimes things can be, uh, let's say, shown not not necessarily out of context, but maybe not always to the community who needs to see this work. Right. You know, right. so my my biggest fear is when I do, I prepare for a year or two years for a show and then it's just a, a certain community that sees the show and then maybe, maybe not the people I would really, really like. Um, so then is art changing the world or is it just, you know, you go to see an exhibition that you like, that you want to see. It's very rare that you go see something that you don't want to see. So sometimes it's preaching to the preached, and that's something to be careful about. So I'm I'm trying to keep a reasonable amount of control in how the work is viewed and in what context. And, you know, like ideally, ideally, the best context is to have art, I think, like on some kind of really super public, public platform where it, everyone gets to see it and then everyone can dialogue and, you know, um, exchange feelings and thoughts and, you know, but it's very hard. It's very hard to show art that way unless it's like an outdoor sculpture because we have such kind of regimented um, ways to to view, you know, and exhibit art today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so, okay. So what about like graffiti art? Has that, has that been something that you've ever toyed around with? Um, a little. Uh, it's very interesting um, time right now in Beirut because uh, a couple years ago, it's like uh, there was this huge discovery and um, you know explosion of graffiti all around the streets of Beirut. Uh, people started making their own stencils, their own creating big murals, and now it's it's a really really big thing. And a lot of them are socio-political messages, which is interesting, or messages from, you know, uh, groups who like, uh, you know, maybe like gay and lesbian groups who are not comfortable, you know, voicing their, uh, you know, their opinions in public. There's a lot of really, really interesting um, gay and lesbian graffiti. So it's like the walls of Beirut have become a very interesting ground for dialogue and sharing of ideas. Well, I was going to say because yeah, that um, like that type yeah. of art that type of art allows you to sort of pick your pick your location. It might be, but it might be more tempor- yeah. it might be more temporary than, and you know, an installation, yeah. or a, a painting yeah. hung on a museum wall. Yeah, you know, but. yeah, yeah. 
I think, I mean, ideally, ideally, I think that if you can combine writing and film and art and street art and gallery art, you know, if, if you can find the right equation for all of that, then it's, it's great. It's a blessing. Um, you know, but just sticking to one venue kind of, it starts to confine, uh, the work. Yeah. It seems like you need to, I mean, not only do you need to spread it out geographically, but you need to spread it out into, um, different groups. Like there's just a certain set of, there's a certain kind of person that is going to go to a gallery opening. Do you see that? You, yeah. You, that's just what you're saying. And so it's yeah. like, it's hard to reach yeah. beyond yeah. the, the kind of art yeah. scene people, unless you're out in public with yeah. the work or you're finding creative ways yeah. to display, you know? Yeah. Well, that in a way, um, that's partially why I, I spend a lot of, I've spent a lot of time developing my website because I think that's, that is the freest and most open, you know, venue. Um, so I, I always try and, um, and keep the site updated and have it, you know, be as interactive as possible. Uh, and I think, you know, we're very lucky with the internet now because, um, you know, people in China and South America can see my work. So what is you your know? website? So I'm, I'm, Why don't you plug it right here just so we can make sure people know. <laughs> it's my name. So ZainaElKhalil.com. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. you know, and it's interesting. I used to go... I used to have a, a kind of um, an alter ego because I wasn't I wasn't very uh, comfortable, like uh, because I was worried that the work might be too political or whatever. But um, this year, I decided it's time to like start using my real name and just go for it. So now, so you're, that's, so that's the new. <laughs> n- 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 what was your What was the old moniker? Was that Ziggy Doodle or is that? Yeah, in Ziggy Doodle. <laughs> okay, so now, but now you're just yeah. now you're owning it. Now I'm owning it. Yeah, you know, I was seventy six is Year of the Dragon, and this year was was Year of the Dragon, and I made a lot of big decisions. I said it's time to, um, you know, it's 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 time to go for ZainalKhalil dot com. Huge move. Now, what other were there any other big yeah. decisions we should know about? Um. Well, I think I also, I got very lucky that, um, you know, I was accepted to become a TED fellow. Um, and so I, I got to go to, to the TED conference in, in Long Beach in February. And, um, and since then it's opened up, you know, a lot of, uh, doors where I had to, I had to decide if, you know, like giving a talk and, uh, you know, how, how transparent I'm going to be. And, you know, so, I felt like this is the year to just start, you know, um, uh, I mean, the, the writing my book and, and getting it published was a kind of step one, but then putting yourself out there and doing lectures and conferences, you know, then you're really, uh, you're really, you know, owning up to it. Um, I recently got back from, I was invited to give a, a TED talk at, um, TEDx Amsterdam women. So I, uh, I decided to give a talk called uh, Love Will Save Us. And um, I know, you know, it's basically, it's, um, it's my solution to the, the Mideast <laughs> crisis. Um, we've tried everything. Nothing has worked. All we have left is love. And that is what will transform the Middle East. 
So getting in public, you know, getting up in public and saying things like that, um, one could be, you know, uh, misinterpreted or thought of as maybe naive, but uh, I really, really believe in that. Um, And so, you know, it was the year to start saying it publicly and, uh, you know, trying to convince other people, other people too. The year of the dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay, so let's get uh let's get you to Beirut. You went to Beirut for college, correct? Okay. Yes. That's what brought you to the city when you were eighteen years old, is that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. You, you left Nigeria, you decide to go to Beirut. How does that happen? Um I always say it's fate, destiny, because at the time I actually wanted to go to New York. Um, to uh, to study art, but uh, my parents were like, "No, you must go to Lebanon and get married." <laughs> and uh, no, they're really open-minded, but they just uh, I'm I'm the eldest, and it's very normal. Like uh, they they weren't comfortable with the idea of of their daughter going off to New York. Um, so I was like, "Okay, fine, I'll go to Lebanon," and um, and so I I only applied one college and thank God I got, I got in. <laughs> um, and it, it, it turned out to be the best decision I made because I think I had more fun here <laughs> than I would have had in New York because I mean, 18 years old, the civil war had just ended. Um, I was living alone, uh, because my, my family was still in, in Nigeria. Um, so post-war countries, are you know there are no rules there are no regulations um you can do anything you want um and that's when i discovered alcohol (laughs) i was gonna say yeah i'm glad to hear you say all that because you know i i don't want to i mean obviously a a post-war country is is reeling from all sorts of different traumas but the upside is that it's usually cheaper to live there and there seems to Mm -hmm. be some sort of yeah, like what is it like a um, a regeneration of 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 yeah, spirit? Exactly. There's like a huge. I feel like there's a huge exactly. unleashing of energy, creative and otherwise, in a place that yes. has just been through that kind yes. of trauma. And so you just got to kind of you, yeah. you, you kind of arrived yeah. on the scene and got to ride that wave. Exactly, exactly. It was a huge celebration, um, you know, at least in the eyes of an 18 year old. Um, had I been older, I'm not sure how, you know, uh, how I would have experienced it. But I just saw everything as an opportunity to create something new, you know, a, a new um, a new neighborhood, a new uh, society, um, a new art project. Like I could just take my camera and, and go and take pictures. And it was this creative um, energy that was so, so vibrant. Um, that still is like I think that's the nature of countries or forget countries but places that are um, you know volatile. Uh, when you are constantly courting death, you learn how to appreciate life. You really do, and uh, every every moment is so intense. And um, and people here are really really friendly. It's like a giant village because <laughs> most people. No, you know, they'll know your family or they'll know, you know, your your cousin's cousin. So in a way, it's it's 
so easy to make friends and then it's so easy to to go out and socialize so really for for an 18 year old it was it was a dream um and it was a very different experience because when i was when we would come here for summer vacations uh when i was much younger i hated it um because i just felt like i didn't fit in i didn't understand anything uh and of course it was still during the civil war so everyone was um you know <laughs> tense you know and uh, you, you never knew when things would flare up again and uh and so it yeah it wasn't comfortable it wasn't fun um but then later it was totally totally different but at the time beirut i mean today when you tell when you talk to people about beirut they think of it as you know party central it is like the you know the the party capital of the middle east um but back then in 94 uh the only bars that were open were kind of you know like red light you know bars so it wasn't a place where i i could go and feel comfortable so we we and there were no there were very few restaurants uh no movie theaters um because they had all been bombed out uh during the war uh or used as like shelters or sniper points um militia headquarters <laughs> so we actually used to drive every friday and saturday night um and about an hour or if you got caught in the traffic two hours just to go to um the town up north which was relatively unaffected by the war uh, called Juni so we we would make that drive just to have drinks and maybe watch a movie and go to a restaurant and then we come back to to Beirut and um you know there's also like during the war the electricity was cut so most people uh rely on generators or uh battery packs that they charge up you know through the generator so it's always i remember the first thing was be so dark coming back like no light because there's no electricity and uh i get home um and uh, i lived on the rooftop of an old building in a tiny little shack also on the roof so i'd have to walk up you know the seven flights of stairs in pitch dark um scared 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 shitless and like run up lock the door and we're like oh, okay i'm home but you know obviously very happy because i was buzzed you know from the tequila <laughs> i was going to say you have to be drinking if you're i mean I, I, to live and i got like the smallest taste of this when i was in israel just because it's, a, it's somewhat similar there's like a similar heightened level of danger in that part of the world generally and certainly more dangerous than uh, what i'm accustomed to in the states um and you know when you get into socializing with people and you you know when you're talking about the culture uh, in broad strokes like do are people are, are, are like a, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is when people are festive, they're really festive, right? Like everything just seems like it's Absolutely. much more intense, whether it's that or whether it's, you know, just talking on the street on an average day. I did feel like a certain kind of intensity yeah. that, that in some ways um, reminded me oddly a little bit of New York. There was something about the, yeah. the in your face. Yeah. There's like an in your face kind of attitude and like people kind of say how they feel and, I like that, you know. Yeah. I, I prefer that to yeah. people being sort of passive aggressive and you know making you guess how they feel, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I always say, like, we live life here like there's no tomorrow, you know? So we we um, we work like there's no tomorrow, but we also party like <laughs> there's no tomorrow. Because really, it's, I mean, that's the case. I always used to think, ah, oh, this is this romantic notion that Lebanese have of themselves. But then, you know, the, 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 um, the invasion in 2006 um, by the Israeli army, that's exactly what happened. Like one night we were out partying. The next morning, the airport has been blown up, um, and and that night, like half of Beirut was was you know bombs were dropped on half of Beirut okay. on, in the suburbs. So I'm going to stop you here. So it I, does happen. Yeah, okay. yeah, and I want to stop you just because I know that most of my listeners are not going to have great context for the. Okay. You got you guys call it the July War, correct? And it's known as like, yeah. There's yeah. different names for it. But yeah. This was a month, yeah. uh, basically a month-long um, conflict in the summer of 2006. And can you give us yes. a little bit of background as to why it happened? Um, well, as I mentioned previously, we're still kind of in a state of war, you know, uh, between Lebanon and Israel. Um, and until the, uh, you know, the uh, Palestinian issue is resolved, it's going to stay like that. Um, so there's always tension. Um, and in 2006, it started um, basically overnight because there was a, a dispute between, um, between Hezbollah, which in Lebanon is viewed as, um, uh, is not viewed as a uh, terrorist group, which is how it's it's listed in the States, but in Lebanon they're seen as kind of, um, not even a, a militia, but a, a, a group, which is now a political group, but they basically protect Lebanon from, so they liberated Lebanon from the Israeli occupation of Lebanon in the year 2000. The south of Lebanon had been occupied for 20-some years. Um, including my my hometown, I'm I'm originally from the south, so I never got to visit my hometown until the year 2000. Um, and then, um, and they basically are the buffer zone between uh, Israel and Lebanon. So Hezbollah, um, the Israeli army claimed that Hezbollah kidnapped two Israeli soldiers who had wandered across the border. And so in retaliation, um, the Israeli army uh, launched a full-scale invasion, um, using it as an opportunity to try and root out Hezbollah, who they see as a, a threat and a terrorist group. So um, Hezbollah is is mostly rooted in the south of Lebanon and um, and often in the suburbs, they're off, they have offices in the suburbs of Lebanon, and a lot of supporters, you know, live in the suburbs of Lebanon. So they, they, um, the Israeli army launched this, this attack that lasted a, a month, about 33 days, and it, it really, it was, um, it was really aggressive, um, you know, and they, they basically. Uh, turned back the clock on Lebanon, which is what they were claiming to do. It, it, it's a direct quote from one of the generals. So buildings, bridges, roads, homes, infrastructure was blown up overnight. Um, the south of Lebanon completely 
shelled. Um, and, uh, you know, I was also, and that's when I started, um, keeping my blog documenting this whole, uh, this whole invasion. That's how, and that's how, so, that's, how you, that's how your book, yeah. that's how your book was essentially born, right? You started blogging during the yeah. attacks and kind of, you, you kind of gained yeah. some inter- international media attention, like CNN and different news outlets yeah. were featuring you, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. The first night the bomb started falling, um, I thought, like, if, if, if I'm going to die tonight, I want to make sure everyone knows how and why. Because it just, it's something that just came out of the blue. Um, and I was, I was really, really afraid. And I, I didn't want to be another nameless victim, you know. And um, so I, I, I got online and I, I wrote an email that I, I spent the whole night writing and in the morning, I, you know, I was still alive. The electricity was still on. The internet was still on. So I hit the send button, and I sent it to everyone on my in my address book, um, including people I hadn't spoken to in maybe ten years. Um, the next, then I, I got like two three hours of sleep. I woke up, and my inbox was flooded, flooded with emails. Um, and I saw that people were genuinely like they really wanted to know about what was going on because the media was so slow to report. Um, so then the next day, um, a friend of mine set up a blog for me. I didn't even know what, what blogs were. Um, so he, he set me up with an account and he's like, you know, write into here if you can't, you know, cause two, a lot of everyone wants to know, but, uh, you know, you don't have people's emails. So that's how I moved on to blogging. And, um, yeah, and I, I wrote every day, every night for the 33 days. Um, and then during that time, an amazing woman, Samar Hammam, found me. Um, and then she, she planted the seed of, of writing a book. And at the time, the, the war was still going on. So I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. But in a way, this kind of gave me encouragement that, you know, there are people who believe in my writing and, um, you know, there's a need to hear the story. So um, during during the war, my, my very, very, very best friend in the whole wide world, uh, Maya, uh, had, had, had just recently been diagnosed with cancer. So during the war, I was also blogging about her and her condition and what it was like to live, you know, um, to live with cancer, to live with this fear that like the world is just going to collapse and the stress of it all. Um, and, and Maya story really, really touched people's hearts. And, and then I realized like the tools, the power of writing and, and of love, because I, I was, I wasn't writing from a political point of view. I wasn't writing to blame or to hate. I was just writing about our lives and like, you know, everything from, you know, Maya's hair falling out to, you know, making cosmopolitans, like to help pass time away. <laughs> um, I was also writing about <laughs> environmental disaster, like the, the Israeli army blew up our fuel reserves and um, tons and tons of oil spilled into the sea. Um, and it's, it was the largest environmental disaster of the side of the Mediterranean. Um, but then I was also writing about like silly jokes that people were coming up with. And, um, so it was very human. Then, um, you know, then the, the invasion ended and, um, and then two months later, 
uh, we lost Maya. She passed away, and then I lost myself for a long time, um, seriously, seriously depressed, because Maya was, she was my, my, my partner in crime. You know, I met her in 94, and all those crazy parties and those long drives just to have a shot of tequila, that was all with Maya, you know, really my best friend, uh, my soulmate. And um, what kind of cancer did she? And then she had ovarian cancer. So they call it, you know, the silent but deadly because you, unfortunately, you don't know you have it until it's too late. Yeah, it's it's crazy cancer. Yeah. yeah. So, but then Samar, you know, didn't give up on me. She kept calling me, and then eventually she came to to visit me, and she was like, "You need to start writing again." So I did eventually one night and uh, I I was writing about Maya. It was a dream I had about her. And uh, I wrote, 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 wrote throughout the night. And and then two years later, there was a book. And that first chunk of writing I did is now somewhere in the middle of the book. It's based on this this dream I have of Maya Hmm. visiting her in the graveyard. And uh, and so the book was, the book is not the blog. Um, it's not, you know, there is a little bit about the 2006 invasion, but it's a very small part of the book. Um, but the book is, is about, you know, our, our, our friendship, Maya and I, um, my experiences growing up in Beirut as a, you know, independent, um, you know, female artist, you know, free thinker, and also, you know, about, um, post-war, post-war Beirut and what it was like. Um, and there's also a few surprises, but <laughs> um, because I go, I go into my life before I was Zena now. Um, and just to build this idea of um, the cycle, and the cycle of violence that, that lives um, in this region and now is, is, is global, you know. So yeah. it's unfortunately... It's a very, very tough time to be living in. Um, but, you know, it, it can't last forever, all these wars. There are more people who don't want war than there are who, who want. So okay. it, it will change. Okay, so let's, yeah. let's talk about this. Because I've had conversations with friends through the years uh, of every walk of life. I'm always asking people, especially people who have ties to the region, whether they're Israelis or Jewish friends of mine who have relatives who live there or... They're, uh, you know, friends of mine who have Palestinian friends or friends of mine who just have relatives who live in the region. Like what you mentioned earlier that until the Palestinian issue is resolved, it's going to be difficult to um, remove the countenance of war between Lebanon and Israel or between, mm-hmm. you know, between lots of countries in the region and Israel, frankly. So yeah. what, what yeah. is the Palestinian issue? And then like, like you know, you, you alluded to it earlier with uh, – you know, when you were referencing your TED fellowship and the speech that you gave in Amsterdam, but like, can you elaborate on how you think this thing ultimately is going to be solved and what, what needs to happen? Like try to define it for people who might not see it clearly. Okay. I think there's two ways to look at this. Um, there's like, let's say the basic political, you know, situation, which is, um, you know, many, many years ago, we all lived here peacefully. Uh, there were no borders. Um, you know, there were no, um, 
we shared the land. We shared the land. Um, this is before uh, World War II. Um, you know, and then later, uh, then the state of, you know, uh, countries were invented and created, and then people and tribes were uh, divided. Um, you know, and then uh, when the state of Israel was, was created, um, many Palestinians were displaced because they were uh, forced off their land. Um, you know, and this is basic history. So the problem now is that there is this entity in the Middle East um, called Israel, who, because, you know, uh, the Jewish people suffered so much in the Holocaust, are very um, worried about having to go through that again. So they've created a state to, that supposedly protects them. Um, but unfortunately, what has happened is that they've created the state, but then they've displaced, you know, people who are already living there. And um, the whole notion of the state of Israel is that it's a land for the Jews and no one else. And so I think that's, you know, the, the fundamentalism behind that is really unfair. Imagine it was another religion, you know, like this is a state, a country only for Christians. This is a country only oh, you, for you Buddhists. Mean, you mean America? No one else is welcome. <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> nice one. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm glad you threw in a joke because this is really like heavy stuff. No, so, it's, it's so difficult. Um, it's so difficult and frustrating. And I mean, I, and I don't even live there. You know what I'm saying? Like just trying to wrap my head yeah, around it. Like, yeah. And, and there's so yeah. many, there, there are so many, there, there are a lot of fundamental ironies or fundamental yeah. contradictions, but then there's also embedded within those ironies and contradictions, like incredible layers of complexity and yeah, it's just, it's a big ball of yarn to untangle, you know? And, and I feel like. You know, anybody who is a free thinker or who has, you know, some degree of rationality uh, happening can't help but look at the situation and be able to empathize with almost all sides. Do you know what I'm saying? At least find some strain of yeah. empathy with all sides. So it becomes, you know, very difficult to mm -hmm. sort of parse it and figure out how to make some sort of solution yeah. that can satisfy everyone for the long term. So the, the, I think that it's actually very simple because the more we conceptualize it and the more we go back into history and, okay, you did this to me, you did that to me, you did that to me, it's never going to end. And that's something I was very, you know, when I was blogging, I said, this isn't the time to hate or blame. This is the time to call for ceasefire, to restore humanity. So I think the solution is very simple, um, and, but it's, it will require a leap of faith. Basically, um, it's three steps. First, um, forgiveness. You know, we have to kind of wipe the slate clean because everyone has been hurt and you can't start competing about who was hurt more. Right. So forgiveness, you know. Then a kind of like a responsibility in building uh, a, healthy, um, a healthy community, a healthy uh, economy, um, uh, learning how to share, share land, share resources, because the world we live in today is based on fear. 
and it's based on like an economy that is is um, is uh, kept alive through war and the sales of weapons to control resources, you know. So like, forget all that. Let's invest in peace. Let's invest in sharing, you know, because land belongs to everyone. The world belongs to everyone. And then the third step, and this is where the leap of faith is, you know, we're all talking about revolutions in the Arab world, but no one, you know, I think we need a revolution of the human spirit. Like we need to love, respect, share, um, you know, and, and just take ourselves to the next level because we are capable of so much as human beings. We're capable of giving so much love, but we're controlled by so much fear, you know? So if we can just take this leap of faith and push ourselves like to the next level of evolution, if you want to call it, and just take that jump, you know, and if these three things come in together, <laughs> I think that we won't have a problem anywhere in the world, you know, and that I think that's the only thing that will really, really solve things in a long term perspective, you know, for now, like creating uh, countries, creating, uh, you know, more walls, more borders. It's temporary. But eventually, wouldn't it be so cool, you know, if we had this kind of like Jerusalem being the capital of the world, you know, um, and everyone just coming in and out, uh, paying their respects, uh, sharing the land, and, you know, just having these open borders and instead putting all this energy we have into, like, inventing really cool stuff and creating great paintings and, you know, just uh, instead of all this crazy war bullshit because that's not that's not going to take us anywhere but the people who want to control know that and that's why they're fueling the public with fear and that's the greatest challenge we have as individuals is to educate ourselves find out exactly like is this real or is this just like propaganda you know and then how to get past that now i think we can do it I really, I really do. I think what's happening in the Middle East now is just the beginning. You know, um, people are just beginning to understand that they have the power to make a difference, you know, and it's just about becoming like more educated and organized. And really, I think the more, you know, even little things like chat rooms on the internet, like get out there and like talk to people who you're supposedly not allowed to talk to and, you know, cross those borders in cyberspace and then, you know, then bring those ideas back home. And <laughs> okay, I'm good. I can go on for hours about this. I think I, I was going to say, now. I was going to say, I'm, that... <laughs> I am prepared, I'm prepared to vote for you. I want you to know that. <laughs> Uh, have this you is ever, by my painting. Uh, yeah, so you, but you have. Do you Starving have? Artist. Have you ever? Uh, have you ever considered uh, going into public office or anything like that? Would you have you ever considered trying to like work at that level, or are you content to work as an artist and affect it from that vantage? Well, you know, um, unfortunately, where I live in Lebanon, um, we have a very messed up uh, political system because. It's um, it's based on your uh, religious background, the religion you were born into. So, for example, our president, 
by law, always has to be a, uh, a Christian, uh, uh, specifically a Maronite Christian, which is the, it's a kind of, it's very similar to Catholicism, but here in the Middle East. Uh, the prime minister always has to be a Muslim Sunni, and then the Speaker of Parliament always has to be a Shiite uh, uh, Muslim. Um, so I don't fit into any of those because I, uh, my family background is a small uh, uh, minority. And so by law, I could never hold any of those offices. Um, and so that whole kind of the, the, the system we have here really puts me off. I don't think... I have the capacity or the training to, um, let's say, topple this <laughs> this wait law. A minute, wait a minute! But wait I, a minute! Wait a minute! You could make the most yeah. badass political posters ever. You have that. I could. <laughs> I could. I could. I could totally. Um, yeah, but yeah, maybe I can. I can make posters for someone who has who has the training. But I, I feel that my my role right now is I'm more comfortable. Um, in self-expression and pushing borders on, let's say, a more grassroots level. And, um, uh, you know, the po- politics is, is very, it's a different world. It's a world on its own. Um, and it's, um, it's not transparent. And uh, I want to do work that's transparent. So I think by writing and, you know, making paintings that I have up on my website, I think that this is, this is what I was, uh, that's my role, you know, and if, if we can, if I can help inspire, you know, some people along the way, then I'm, I'm very lucky. And I feel that, uh, you know, I've been lucky with that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's, that's my role. Um, who knows what the future might bring? Um, you know, maybe, I don't know, but I, I don't think, um, that uh, public office in that respect, um, it's not something that I, I see myself working with. Okay. Also, also, I you know I think the whole thing about transparency is that it's very rare for people in public office to be completely transparent. And I can't imagine, you know, not sharing my <laughs> feelings and emotions. You know, mm. uh, yeah, yeah. I, I find it. Like I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally does because I'm I'm fascinated with politics, maybe more so than most of people I know. But you know, I think as a writer, like my aversion to politics and my fascination to politics are related, and I'm particularly fascinated with politics at the, at the level of language, which I think is is tied to your um, comments about transparency, because you know, pol- you know, politicians are forever perverting the language and they're bending the language and they're using words and rhetoric and crafty ways and sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad, but it's a, it's a language game so often. And so as a writer, Mm -hmm. I I find it, I guess I find it in some maybe dark way, kind of interesting to watch because you have these competing interests, you know, making their very carefully crafted statements. And then, you know, you now have, you now have uh, shows on television and, and comedy shows in particular, like the daily show here in the States and, yeah. Um, you know, shows like that, which have essentially become uh, shows that are about media critique and are about the parsing of this language. And so, you know, for somebody who is predisposed to share as you are and as I am and as most of the people probably listening to this show are, 
you know, politics is sort of anathema. It would be a very restrictive way of living. And mm. at the same mm. time, I think somebody who's a good writer and who's good at communicating could probably excel in some regard, at least at that, mm -hmm. at that game. And so I guess it just, a ma it's a matter of what your motivations are and, and what your tolerance is for that sort of dark art, you know? Yeah. 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 So let me ask you before I let you go about your time in New York, because I know you spent some time mm -hmm. here in the States and, and mm -hmm. um, you were there on 9-11. So that's yet another yeah. like, gigantic, crazy <laughs> life experience for you. You know, you seem yeah. to have had, yeah. a, had a lot of these. But can you talk about why you were in New York and, and what that experience was like? Yeah, I, I had. Um, so Beirut has a, a great side to it, but it also has a horribly dark side. <laughs> um, and uh, it can it can eat you alive because they're you know um, even after the celebrations and all that I saw that nothing really had changed much. There were still unresolved issues. There were still thousands of people declared missing whose bodies were never recovered, whose families are still suffering and you know not knowing uh, where they are. Uh, the politics, the government hadn't changed. Basically, militiamen left their guns and, you know, they traded in their guns for, for suits. And they're all in our government now. Um, and so it, 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 it kind of turned bitter at one point and, and dark. And, you know, what used to be a fun night out became, uh, you know, it, there was always some kind of aggressive or violent ending to it. Um, because basically the city had, had caught up to us. And I always say it's, um, it's, it's the spirits of, of the dead who were, who were not buried properly, you know, not, not given proper burials, who, who, who were left on the streets for, for days sometimes and, uh, a lot of, a lot of angry spirits. Um, and, and so they, they, they had caught up to us. And so I felt it was time to, to get out, um, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, and try something new and, and go back to, to art and, and, and poetry and life. Um, so New York, <laughs> um, I applied for, for, uh, for a master's degree. Um, so I'm doing a, an, an MFA, master's in fine arts. Um, I moved in 2000 and then, 2001, there I was um, in the middle of 6th Avenue, and so I had perfect sight. Um, it was just just outside my um, my my school, and uh, so as I watched the first building fall, I just I knew life would never be the same again. Like I could I could feel I knew what the consequences were going to be, and I was just praying in my heart like please, please don't let it be us. And then I realized like, wow, us, it was the first time, it was the first time I thought of myself as Arab, you know, because before I was just Zena, crazy Zena, artist Zena, but now I was Zena the Arab. And, uh, and so in a way, this started formulating my, my identity. And now in, in retrospect, like it was such a difficult time to be there. Um, you know, because it was such a horrible, horrible, horrible attack. But if there's any, you know, silver lining to the cloud, I think in a way I'm, I'm very, I'm very grateful to have experienced it because I understood then 
that like war has had become truly global, you know, uh, 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 and and that it it wasn't just in the Middle East anymore. The fact that it had come to America meant that the world is in serious serious crisis, and and so then I that's kind of when I transformed all my my art making because I had been doing other things, but at that moment. Um, specifically the night, you know, the, the U.S. Um, invaded Iraq, that's when I started painting uh, about political issues. And, um, and since then, you know, I, I haven't stopped. Like, all my work is exploring, you know, the world of violence and religion and gender, you know, and trying to transform the violence into something positive. And um, so in, in a way, again, destiny. You know, I think I was really supposed to be there and see that so that I I could, I feel like I'm, I'm, I need to do something to make a change. And I, I now have the validity to say what I'm saying because I saw it in Lebanon and I saw it in New York and it's the same disease, you know? Um, and I think that, that this, I have this bridge now. Uh, between the two worlds, and I'm and I'm trying to make uh, a difference, you know, through through this this bridge. So it it was it was a bitter experience, but um, but it was necessary. Uh, and I'm just lucky. I feel very lucky that um, that I've I've been able to find venues to transform those ideas, you know, into into books and sculptures and uh, you know. All of that. Okay, so one last question with respect to the, your visual art in particular, and also your your personal presentation with respect to your art, and that is the the color pink, which features. <laughs> Talk about the color pink and why you're you seem to be obsessed with it in your work. <laughs> I am a, I am definitely obsessed with it. I think that um, well, there's there's two two uh, two ideas behind it. First of all, born in '76. Whether I like it or not, I'm a product of MTV culture. Pop pop cult is in my blood, and it's something I'm very proud of because it, you know, um, a young girl in Africa, you know, listening to Iron Maiden and making art, you know, that's that that was that that pop cult bridge, and that 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 helped me dialogue with the rest of the world. Um, I think that that. You know, it, popular culture is an international language, and this can this can tear down you know uh, borders and 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 dissolve fear, um, and and so in a way, this you know pink reflects our consumer culture, our pop culture. I think it's the color of my of my generation, um, and then there's the whole issue of you know humor and irony. I'm dealing with really heavy subjects, and um, and I try, you know, I, I, I use the pink and, and the glitter to kind of create a, an irony with the, the visuals that I'm, I'm exploring. So when you see this, you know, macho, macho man carrying like a, a pink Kalashnikov, you know, it, it kind of says something about like the, the, the silliness, the, the absolute absurdity of, of carrying guns. And so in a way, this pink... Um, transforms, you know, this this object of violence into something that that you can, you know, that that is harmless, and um, 
And so I, I think it's, um, it's a good way. It's a good, um, it's a good road, you know, for if you're, you're dealing with very, very heavy subjects and it allows access accessibility to the artwork. So like peace should be completely accessible. And I think art should be even more, you know, um, I think it should be something that, that you can read into that will stimulate you and keep you stimulated and, and keep you talking about it. But it, it art should be an open door, not one that makes you feel afraid, you know, to, uh, to try and decipher the work. Uh, and I think pink is <laughs> the perfect tool for that. Hmm. Well, on that note, it has been so fun talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very honored and it's, it's been fun. You know, it's, it's midnight here in Beirut. So I feel like, uh, we're, we're having a drink, you know, and just, <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm hammered. I'm hammered. I've been drinking Talking the whole time. over a drink. <laughs> Great. Well, Zena, uh, thanks again, and, and uh, you know, best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is Zena El Khalil. Go get her book. It is called Beirut. I love you, and it is available in the United States of America in ebook format from NYRB Lit. You can find Zaina on the web at ZainaElKhalil.com. She's on the Twitter at Ziggy Doodle. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, just to be clear, Kill Rockstars provided about four-fifths of the music today, uh, or maybe three-fourths. The song that played while I was reading my tweets is a Brian Eno number called The Silver Ball. So go download that. And uh, thank you for indulging me in ranking the show on iTunes. Don't forget to get your copy of Board, the new book, B-O-A-R-D. And also, uh, don't forget to get the Other People app, the official app of this podcast. It is free for your iPhone or your iPad at the App Store or your Android device at the Android Marketplace. It is the best way to listen to this show. It's an app. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also get access to the deeper archives and all the great premium content. So go get the Other People app. It's free. Uh, What else? It's late here in Los Angeles. I'm racing to get this show up onto the Internet. Can you hear it in my voice? Can you hear uh, the sense of urgency? I want you to know how devoted I am to delivering quality audio content to you people of earth please remember that Django Reinhardt spent his childhood in a traveling gypsy caravan and that Nathaniel West died one day after F Scott Fitzgerald thank you for listening as always I'm going to sign off I'm going to bid you farewell I'm going to sleep I will be back soon Uh, I have more shows in the offing and just so you know I will be broadcasting all throughout the holidays uh, without a break new episodes on Sundays and Wednesdays same as usual Uh, why uh, because I like doing the show. I don't know. I'm a workaholic. I, I think uh, I think I might have issues. And I want to uh, give you something to listen to while you are in transit, while you are delayed at the airport, uh, or while you are stuck in the back of a Greyhound bus next to a smelly ex-convict, or while you are sitting on the couch at your relative's house trying desperately to escape your social anxiety and or crushing boredom. Okay. 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 Okay.